Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, very good afternoon, morning, or evening, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you could join us, we would appreciate you going to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, where we have a Watch Live tab at the top of the screen. You click on that, and you'll be able to engage with us face-to-face, as well as have a countdown to the next broadcast, so you can fit in where 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time from Monday through Friday fits into wherever you'll be listening. You can leave us your questions there or by email at questionsforhope at gmail.com. It will be spelt out at the bottom of the screen for you. And as well, if you would like to join us on social media, YouTube is A Reason for Hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And if you'd like links to these pages as well as for updates on the topics we'll be discussing, feel free to join us on Twitter at ScottR4H. Uh, Their confidence has recently been renewed. If you'd also like to join us for the reasons of which we are gathering, if it's prayer requests, if it's questions about the Bible and biblical history, relevance to your life today, or even matters of biblical prophecy, all are welcome here as long as they are sincere and not profane. But uh, noting that point as well, we want to encourage this as an opportunity for you to get us your Bible questions as long as they are sincere about the Bible and in the form of a question. Note as well, if you have non-believing friends or perhaps individuals that want to join us specifically that aren't Christians, and you want to address these issues between where we believe and where you do, we are more than welcoming towards that, but just note that as long as the respect is shown, it will also be returned. Sincerity will always be met with clarity, as we say. So noting that point, if you want to join us, again, our website is Calvary, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, ChristianFellowship.com. Our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. Our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Give us a like or subscribe. You'll be notified when we are going live. But note, if you don't see us going live and we haven't given you prior notification as to why technologically, that was the result of tech tyranny. So we will still be broadcasting on our website. We encourage you to make that your regular meeting place with us and as well to continue in habits. Uh, we also want to start off with a word of prayer before we get started. Mercy needs to be the basis for this. So why don't we do that and we'll get to today's apologetics topic as well. Dad, thank you that you show us so much mercy and give us so many opportunities to represent you, but you're the best at that. So we want to ask that you would fill Peter and I with your spirit on the basis of grace, allow your truth to go forth. Give us all ears to hear your voice, hearts that are sensitive to receive it, and most of all, just the attitude that wants to learn from you. Allow us to gather together with the purpose of being a blessing to you and each other. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so starting off, we discussed a few controversial topics over the last couple of weeks, especially delving around issues that are being used more and more to put restrictions on the freedoms and rights of those who hold a biblical worldview. And ultimately leading up to the, I guess, crux of the question, what we're going to be 
discussing today is where is the line? When should Christians not only start opposing these policies, but outright civil disobedience, that these things are passed into law, but they violate our biblical worldviews? When is that spelled out for us, and when can we just continue to pray for those in authority and take the rest on the chin, as they say? Obviously, there's three ways we can look at this. We can look through the example of Christians in history. We can found it on the example of our Lord, but we can also make sure that our decisions on an individual basis as well as a communal one are based on biblical principles. There could always be someone who goes too far too quickly, and we specified briefly last week that there should be a resistance that meets the opposition, but we want to go into more detail than just that. So starting with the recap, what are we discussing so that it's not misunderstood, and now let's, uh, I guess from there, make sure that what we say is understandable. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting question, one that a lot of Christians debate about, the idea of when the government begins to do things that go contrary to the Christian worldview, how far is too far, and in what means can a Christian resist? And is that biblical? Is that appropriate? Things to that nature. And uh, to be honest, we mentioned this last week, there really isn't a prescription for Christians to resist, meaning that there's no passage in the Bible that says that we ought to fight back against powers and authorities, that we, we have to do that. So there have been Christians throughout world history that have taken a much more passive view of world governments, even when the world government was doing something that was pretty horrendous. Now, this doesn't mean that they would go along with it, and this would get more into the idea of civil disobedience, and we'll get there in a second. But it does mean that they didn't take any outward approaches to going against it. They didn't do protests. They didn't start riots. They didn't uh, take up arms. They just more opposed it in a way where they would refuse to go along with whatever negative or uh, evil edict that was given down by the government. So we don't really have a prescription. We don't really have something in the Bible saying we have to do this. But we also have restrictions on what we can do if we choose to do it. So that is a big thing as well. I mean, Sean will get into that. Now, there's an argument that some Christians could make, and this is one that can be held in the bounds of Christianity. There's debate here. Uh, some Christians would take more of a stance of, well, you know, in Jeremiah, as well as Ezekiel and Daniel, the exile books, what you have is you have the people of God that are not in Israel anymore. They've been exiled to other lands, and they are directly commanded by God to seek the good and dwell within the lands that they are present within. Uh, Christians would fall under that same purview. We are not in any type of promised land. We don't have any theocracy that is Christian-run. We are scattered across the globe, and we uh, subsist under various governances, some more pro-Christian, some pretty anti-Christian. And because of that, we would some people would say we're kind of in that exile type purview. And therefore, we should treat the governments that we're uh, interacting with the same way that the exiled Israelites would. So their argument would be, okay, it's not just about the government telling you to do something that runs completely contrary to your Christian worldview, but it is about proactively trying to create a government that would benefit all those around you, which would mean make it more and more Christian. So the reason why Christians have the worldview that we do about sexuality, about human interaction, about politics and their uh, their interaction with mankind and people, uh, our belief systems about the family, our belief systems about education, all these things that we have, if they're coming from a biblical worldview, we really believe that these things will work. 
meaning that if the world started to incorporate more and more of our worldview, the world would become a much better place. So therefore, it would make sense for a Christian to proactively seek the type of government that reflects what the Bible says. And again, there's debate amongst Christians about what that looks like. Does that mean creating a theocracy? Does that mean creating a government and we'll never be happy until we get a government that perfectly uh, operates based upon the Bible? That all of our politicians have to be outspoken Christians. All of them have to be following the text of Scripture. Is that what we're saying? Uh, well, you know, there are some Christians who have believed that way, but most Christians have not. Most Christians have said, no, 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 we don't want that. But they fall more to the First Timothy 2 type passage that we pray for all those who are in authority, that we might live quiet and peaceful lives in serving our Lord. So in other words, we want a government that essentially gives us religious freedoms in order to be able to practice our fealty to God without being interfered against and without allowing our morality to be attacked or to become against. So it's not that people can't have different moralities, but we do we would like to live in a culture and a civilization that upholds a lot of our core values and principles to preserve life and to help us out. So, for instance, uh, the right to life, uh, the principle of abortion. Why would Christians outwardly oppose that? Well, it's because the government, if it's to do anything, is to preserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for the citizens contained within. If you get rid of the right to life, you don't have any rights. Right? So that is kind of the main one. If you don't have any right to life, then there is no purpose for government in general. Or if the government is not protecting your right to life, the government isn't doing anything proactive that's beneficial for its people. So most Christians would point to that and say, well, that's a fundamental or foundational Christian worldview that we can't give up. I might be able to be okay with, say, uh, no-fault divorce within our country, or the idea that people can have sex outside of marriage without facing legal consequences or something like that. I'd be okay with that, but when it comes to these more fundamental rights, I don't think that the government should... Uh, I mean, I do believe that the government should enforce these things, and I should fight for that. So what does that fight look like? So again, just that may make you feel a little shaky, or like, well, you didn't really answer the question. Well, it's very hard to answer the question because, like I said, different Christians throughout world history have taken it different ways of what it means and how what they're willing to do to fight and when they're willing to fight. So it is supposed to be kind of a murky issue. I could tell you where I personally fall on it, but it would actually take quite a long time because political discourse is difficult. Political philosophy is even more difficult. There are things that I'm willing to even be changed about. I believe that we ought to resist at certain levels, but the level that I have is very complex. It's very nuanced. There are certain things that I'm okay with. There are certain things that I'm not okay with. I have my reasons. I have my, uh, my responses to these types of attacks, but some of them might not be very good. I, I'm willing to be talked out of them by a more learned Christian. Absolutely. Now, what I am more secure about is the means in which we can resist. How can we resist if we're going to? So when it comes to things that are being threatened for the Christian, we talked about this a little bit last week, there should be an escalation of force. So if the government is doing something that doesn't necessarily infringe on my capacity to be a Christian, uh, like let's say if the government said, you're not allowed to go to church anymore, you're not allowed to proselytize, you're not allowed to share your faith, uh, you're, you're not allowed to, you know, if you're a doctor working at a particular hospital, you have to perform abortions. You have, right? So these are more, uh, these are more extreme scenarios in which our response is more obvious. But 
let's just say, for instance, we used this example last week, and I could use it again uh, this week. Let's say, for instance, that our show does get booted off of YouTube or Facebook or something like that. Again. Right, again, right, which happened, but not totally. But, you know, obviously particular episodes have been booted off. That's okay. How should we respond to that? Is that a time to say civil disobedience? You know, I'm not, I'm not going to pay my taxes. I'm not going to do anything that the government asked me to do. And you know what? I'm going to start protesting outside of Facebook. And I'm going. Well, I wouldn't necessarily do that. It's not that I'm restricted from say protesting. I'm not restricted from say encouraging my fellow uh, friends and colleagues from getting off of that platform. But that doesn't, again, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do those things. It just means that you can. And it doesn't mean that I could resort to violence, right? I can't actually go to Facebook and burn down their buildings or something like that or attack or harass their members. It just means that there is a level that I can resist within the framework of governance. Because the main thing that we see throughout Romans 13, for instance, if you want to read that in your own time, is that the general ideal for Christians is that we follow the law that we follow the law that of the land, that we don't resist it and we don't go against it unless the law specifically prohibits us from being Christians. So if the law doesn't do that, though, we have to, we can resist. We don't have to. But if we're going to resist, we have to do it within the confines of the law itself. And there's more I could say about that, but uh, do you have anything to add to that before we kind of move on? Well, not necessarily, but you can see an example of it. When Facebook took down our videos because of fill-in reason here, or YouTube would shadow ban or fill in the blank as far as any form of digital and very light persecution and opposition to our ability to do what God's called us to do. It doesn't limit us to still communicate at our local fellowship. It doesn't limit us to still go on outreaches. However, you do note that we've had responses to it. I, in particular, make sure that when we start the broadcast, I take the time to explain this is an area of concern. That is a form of opposition. I'm pointing out and criticizing their opposition as a continual risk and hazard, which is, of course, going to affect their business model for fellow Christians who want to listen to this broadcast. I also do it with a bit of humor because I note that it doesn't actually affect our lives that much, but I still want to draw attention to it in a lighthearted manner so you know it's not a five-alarm fire. So it's meeting the opposition with equal opposition. It's a very light, it's a very inconsequential gesture, and so I return rather the gesture as a court gesture. (laughs) I make jokes about it. But if, on the other hand, Facebook were to, you know, come in with, like, like their blue pin badges and start beating me with a nightstick, then I might voice that. I might uh, call the local police and say, I didn't know Facebook had a police state. Are they lizards too? And that's a joke, of course. But you're, you're noting the point. It's re- matching the issue with an equal and opposite response, not escalating. And that's the point. Exactly. Now, um, I'm going to get to the, uh, the turn the other cheek passage in a second because yeah. that's been used by some Christians to suggest that we can't resist at all any type of oppression. We have to just kind of take it on the chin and turn the other cheek, as it were. But before we get to that passage, it's also important to understand that depending on the country that you live in is also depending on how you can resist. Because like I said, again, I'll repeat it. If the government is not actually actively infringing on your capacity to serve and to worship God, they're not actually going against something that would enable you to worship God or to exercise your faith. That means evangelism, and that means worship and and gathering together as believers. If the government isn't actively stopping you from doing that, then— but they are doing something that makes it more difficult. Like you said, Sean, 
taking us off of YouTube or something that makes it more difficult for us to proselytize or to do these things that build up or encourage the church. Because of that, our resistance has to be done within the confines of the laws. So that really does depend on where you live. Right? So if I'm in Canada, obviously I can be arrested for making jokes, but in the United States I won't. In Mexico or Japan, it's somewhat lenient. The topics vary, but you note where you're at. What can I do that's a reasonable and what can I oppose that's unreasonable? And that's the issue of what you have to define. Absolutely. And so if you live in a Western country like America, the United, the United States, um, actually, our capacity to resist the government within the laws is really good. Right? We, have, we have a pretty robust legal structure created for us by our founding fathers that allow us to resist the government in a lot of different ways. There's a myriad of ways that Christians can, or any group of people within the United States, can legally oppose what the government or what other structures of power, whatever you're talking about, large corporations, things like that, there are a myriad of ways that we can resist within the confines of the law. So be studious. If you want to get more into this, start studying the laws of your country. Start going through and figuring out what are the things that I can do legally to oppose what the government is doing, to draw attention to it, to show people, uh, and maybe to explain to people why this could be potentially bad moving forward as a country and why I think that it would be better if we moved in a different way. Uh, this also means uh, getting more political if that's what your thing is, right? Uh, start supporting various candidates. Start really encouraging people to, to vote in a particular way. You can absolutely do that. Now, for the Christian, this isn't really a, uh, a legal thing, meaning it's not a law thing that we have in the Bible. There is a danger of starting to set your sights too much on the earth and the po political structure of the earth than on God. So it's not that we can't go out and be very politically active, but it's that we can't rest our entire hope on the politicians around us. We have to remember that if you read the book of Revelation, it's not like the governments of the world are going to be doing too great at that point. We know that the governments of the world are going to ultimately resist God. We know that they're ultimately going to go against God. We don't know when that's going to start happening or to what level it's going to start happening, but we do know that it will happen. So therefore, I shouldn't put all of my faith eggs inside of this basket called politics. Uh, it's probably not going to work out too good for me. I think when I was a young man, younger man, I'm still pretty young, when I was a younger man, I did that. And I was very disappointed with my time serving in the Marines, trusting the governmental structures that were supposed to protect me and protect the sacrifice that I was willing to make. I was very disappointed. Uh, disillusioned by what I saw when I was deployed, by the structure of the government that I got a little bit of peek behind the curtain working for the government. I realized how corrupt and messed up that is. Right, It really disillusioned me, and that's because I was putting too much emphasis on the worldly structure being my salvation, the worldly structure uh, making a difference within my life. It's not that we shouldn't fight for these things, but we should also recognize the power that these things actually have. Uh, don't put too much of your faith within the confines of changing the political structure. Now, uh, let's get to this, this passage about uh, peaceful resistance, civil disobedience, as we're calling it. So some Christians would point to the passage in Matthew where Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek to them. And then he also talks about, say, a Roman soldier used to compel people to walk a mile with a particular burden. And he says, if someone compels you to walk a mile, walk an extra mile with them. Now, when people read that in isolation, they can make a conclusion of, okay, well, Jesus is saying that we're supposed to just take everything on the chin. 
right? No matter what the government does to us, as long as it's not preventing us from specifically worshiping God, we should just take it on the chin, move on, and allow God to work within our lives. Is that an appropriate way to understand that text? Well, understand, perhaps, apply, I would say no. Because if you're asking the question, am I in a situation where I'm under first century Roman occupation, where there have been, and very plainly spelled out, mortal consequences, which would certainly impede me from sharing the gospel, if I didn't, as a subjugated citizen, actually follow this compulsion law. A Roman soldier would lay his spear on me. Our soldiers don't have spears, and we're not under United States occupation of the United States. So we wouldn't have those ways to apply it that way, but understanding is the key. Also note, if I'm slapping someone on the face, that's going to make a different statement than it did in the first century. In the application, if I were to do the same thing today, I would talk to them pretty much the same way everyone talks to each other on the internet. It's scorn, insult, and invective, right? But it's meant to communicate that. And if I understand it in that way, if I apply it in that way, that would be inappropriate. Right. So that passage is not talking about someone actually coming up to you and laying hands on you and trying to do physical harm to you. This is someone who is insulting you. That's the idea of being slapped in the face, right? Right. Just like in the first century, they had a society that was structured around what we would call here in the United States in most places, mutual combat laws. If you got in a fight with somebody, that was understood to be a quarrel between someone's honor and another's. If you wanted to kill somebody, that was another different, that was a matter entirely. And if you wanted to insult somebody, they were a very expressive culture. We can also note other examples, say, for instance, with Jairus daughter and people were wailing outside well we generally would say oh that's uh interesting i guess they had a lot of loved ones it's terrible when a child dies and i guess they knew a lot of people no they would actually hire people to mourn and you still see this in the middle east because the more emotion that's expressed at your funeral the more it reflects how much you were cared about so if a father to a daughter lost them at a young age they'd make sure to strike up the you know emo band if you will the point being made is this if i understand something i'm repeating this because i want to make sure it's understood if i understand something and if i apply something those are two different things what was being spoken of by Jesus' time? Don't return insult for insult. We see that explained and understood as well by the apostles in their letters. We see people who were physically assaulted, however, in the book of Acts, and legal defenses were sought out. We saw legal abuse being taken. A good example of that would be the Apostle Paul, right? right? So the Apostle Paul was kind of in a kangaroo court situation uh, where he is being, well, there's one instance where he's actually struck. He's commanded to be struck in an inviolate way against the law, and Paul calls him out for it, right? He calls him a name, too. (laughs) some colorful language, (laughs) you know? Uh, And then he actually respects the authority of the high priest when he realizes that the high priest was the one who said it, but he did resist it. He was like, no, that's not right. He wasn't just like, okay, you hit me. Here's my other cheek. You know, like, hit me again. That's not what he did. He didn't apply it the way that it's understood by some people. Therefore, there's a misunderstanding. That's right. And then when they were continuing this kind of departure from sound justice, even as the Roman government understood it, Paul appeals to Caesar, right? So he doesn't just, again, he doesn't just take it on the chin. He actually resists what's being done to him on, this is important, he resists it on the basis of the law itself, right? So he resists it on the basis and the merits of the law itself. 
And he does something to maneuver in a very different direction, right, to go to Caesar itself. In modern days, it would be kind of like if someone was going to a court and they felt like they weren't getting justice, you have the capacity to appeal to higher courts, right? right? So if I'm at a low-level court, I can appeal to a higher circuit court, and I could actually go all the way up to the Supreme Court if they'll take it. So that's something that we can do in America as well. But that's essentially what Paul was doing. He saw that something unjust was happening, and he resisted it within the confines of the law. So another way to interpret Jesus's words when he says if someone compels you to walk a mile, go an extra mile with them, he's saying there is a particular law that if you resist it as a Jew, you just be killed, right? So instead of just dying for no reason, he says, use the law to your advantage. How can you actually win this person over to understand more of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul did similar things. He sought this higher appointment to the law to give him a higher platform to communicate with people very high up within the Roman government, including the emperor himself. So Christians should always be thinking about how can the law work to promote what we're trying to say, to promote the gospel, work within the confines of the law, not against it, unless... <laughs> the law is specifically going against some sort of a Christian tenet. And this is where we get into uh, civil disobedience. So, for instance, I think the person who did this the best, in my opinion, would be Martin Luther King. I think it's a more modern example that people are aware of. Christians throughout history have done similar things. We're not attributing this kind of idea to him alone. But it's a very modern example that most people are familiar with. And Martin Luther King, he didn't, uh, because he believed that, number one, what people were doing in the South with Jim Crow and and segregation and things like that, he believed that not only did it go against the law of God, but he actually believed that it went against the tenets of the American Constitution. This was his plea, right? So he didn't actually say, we need to just tear down the system. He said, no, the system's good, but the system needs to live up to the promises that it made when it says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So I'm going to hold the system accountable to what it has stated to us. And therefore, there was a lot of ways that he conducted what we call civil disobedience. This would be things like sit-ins. They would go into very public areas, and they would refuse to leave so that you would have many people who were African-American going into places that said, we will not serve African-Americans, and they would just go and sit in there, right? They'd be like, okay, you kick us out if you want. Or people like Rosa Parks, who went to the front of the bus and sat down. And by the way, all these things were not random. Right. Some people think that Rosa Parks just kind of like woke up one morning and was like, I don't really want to go to the back to the bus. <laughs> I'm just going to sit in the front and see what happens. No, this was a very intentional move of this movement, of the civil rights movement, in order to get more, basically, publicity, in order to help their uh, their intent and to move things forward in the way that they wanted. So utilizing civil disobedience as a Christian can be very uh, effective if we know how to use it. So again, Martin Luther King was not doing what, let's say, the black Israelites were doing or the Black Panther movement was doing, where they were actually burning things down and assaulting people and things like that. He was actually working within the confines of the law in order to resist what he saw as very illegal things. And sometimes he went against the law a little bit. So, like I said, in certain aspects of our legal system, it does allow corporations to discriminate on people for any reason. You might even see signs like this today where it says, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone, right? That It says that. So he actually resisted even the legal system because he believed so strongly in what he was promoting. He believed so strongly that what was being done was so detrimental to his relationship with God and to 
the average black person's capacity to function within society that he was willing to go against the law. Uh, you could look at the same thing within even, say, uh, uh, say the Civil War, for instance. Uh, at the point of the Civil War, by the way, the United States through the Supreme Court had already voted that slavery was legal through the Dred Scott case. So technically, Abraham Lincoln's stance, his platform when he ran for candidacy to abolish slavery, wasn't really legal technically because the Supreme Court had already ruled on this particular topic, but he didn't care. He went against it. And many Christians are doing something similar right now where even though the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of abortion, Christians are resisting it at various levels throughout the society. So, And again, I think these things are good. I think these things are very beneficial. Certain governments, certain local governments throughout the country, certain states have gone against this law in various ways, uh, ways that are technically illegal, but they've allowed it to happen, and the Supreme Court's going to rule on it again because of what they're doing. So again, there's, there's a very robust and very complicated way that Christians can resist these things. It's important to understand what you can do, and it's important to understand why we should do it if you're in a capacity, as I said, to help out the society that you're living in and you really believe that the Bible supports what you're doing and that it would benefit those around you. All right. So as we're talking about this, just to recap everything that's been discussed, are we making a call to oppose the government? No. No. If we are given the opportunity to not only communicate, and this is true in the United States, but not as true in other places, oppose worldviews that are against our Christian convictions on an individual and person-by-person level, what do we call that? Evangelism. Is that immoral? No. If it's made illegal, how should a Christian oppose it? Well, as you stated, there are ways to oppose them, not only within a legal system, but also within a moral system. If the two line up, great. And that is something that can be taken advantage of, like you mentioned in history. But if it's not, if someone's called to lay down their life for the gospel, where is that fine line between martyrdom, and this is what I think is ultimately key, and uh, I guess making... uh, yourself a vigilante when it's unjustified. Is someone as a Christian to be informed, to be consistent with their biblical worldview? We went through passages that can be misconstrued as calls to absolute pacifism, and they're not, but also note those who hold that worldview aren't sinning either. What is our principle? It's on a person-by-person basis to communicate the gospel. If our freedoms are limited in that regard, it is not immoral to stand against incrementalism toward evil. And if that's unclear, ask, I'll clarify. But the point also being made is this. If I'm given the opportunity to stand for Jesus Christ, I take advantage of every single one. In light of everything that's been said, and just to clarify so everyone here understands us, what is that line for Christians? The answer is depends. (laughs) Not only in where you are, but who you are and what's happening. Christianity is, as C.S. Lewis put it, a thinking man's religion, right? It is meant to be really pondered on. It's meant to be really thought through and to test your conscience against it. I bring this up all the time because I think it's one of the most interesting cases of this, where you have a guy like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who for many years of the Nazi occupation of Germany did nothing in in absolute opposition to what the Nazis were doing. In other words, he didn't take up arms. He didn't try to kill anyone. He just started an underground church and risked his life every day to continue in that role as a pastor there, even though it was condemned by the Nazi government. It wasn't until the end of the war that he decided that he was going to actually take up arms and try to assassinate Hitler. 
And when he was asked about it, when we were like, well, do you really think this is biblical to do? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't really know if it's biblical to do. Um, I can't really see anything that would officially condemn it where I would look at it and say I'm absolutely in opposition to what God's law is. But I also don't see anything that supports it in any type of actual clear uh, or vivid way. The way he kind of tempered it a little bit was, again, similar logic to Martin Luther King. I am opposing a government that itself illegally seized power, right? So that's what he looked at it. He, he viewed it as the government of the Nazis had illegally seized more power than they were due through the original constitutions of Germany. And he was opposing that and also believing in the worldview of the allies that were attacking Germany. Because of that, he felt like he was okay for him to ally himself with the governances of not only Germany of the past, but also the governments of the countries that were invading Germany in order to do violence against Hitler. Was he right to do it? It's debatable. Right? It's very debatable. But that's what we mean by that, that we have to really be thinking through these things. But it's not even a question. It's not even on the table unless the government starts crossing these more clear and delineated lines. And that's all kept in balance and regulation with Philippians 3.20. I hope our citizenship is in heaven. And if we note that we are grateful for what liberties are given to us in this world, the less we expect, the, the less we'll be disappointed. But the more we're given, the more we should take advantage of. If we can't or if we'd like to preserve those things, all the better. But let's make sure that those things are informed. We'll make that the, the tag. Christianity is a thinking man's religion. So uh, going out to our questions, there was one that we wanted to get to yesterday, but uh, Nina, thank you for your patience and for posting it for us. Uh, and feel free as well, everyone else, if we don't get to your questions, email them to us, questions, F-O-R-hope at gmail.com. That keeps it nice and organized for us so that we don't lose it and you don't get uh, left in the dust. So um, she has an individual in her family who is Catholic and wants to know if there are any living descendants of Jesus today. Now she clarifies from his biological mother, Mary, and would they have some special power or just normal people? Well, Nina, it's a fun question because with the Catholic caveat, there is this assumption of succession that if I am in some uh, lineage uh, for, I guess, uh, Jesus that I am in association with, and they would deny this, but we're going to be honest here, we're Protestants, uh, their goddess, then that would infer on them some sort of divine prerogative. You also see this with St. Anne and so forth, and how she was somehow miraculously uh, protected and anointed in order to give birth to the Virgin Mary. Uh, we do not affirm the dogmas that are associated with Mary, and when it comes to Scripture, this is ultimately what we can stand or fall on as far as whether or not this claim of physical descendants of Mary. Because, no, Jesus was never married. He never produced descendants. But if we make the point and say, oh, well, but Jesus had brothers and sisters, right? Well, they went on to have families and were married. They were all from the tribe of Judah, more or less. Elizabeth, her cousin, was from the tribe of Levi. So where would the association be, and what significance does that carry? Well, there was an incident in the Gospel of Luke where, uh, essentially, uh, Jesus was given an impression 
impressive opportunity to either affirm Mary's divinity, or at least the divine traits that are attributed to her, or at least the divine respect that is given to her by Roman Catholic tradition. And interestingly enough, when the woman said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the nurse, uh, the breast that nurse you, and Jesus replied with, More so than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and believe. There was another incident where Jesus' brothers were combating him, and uh, of course, in their opposition, this is leading up to his famous... Uh, encounter in the Gospel of John where the I Am statements were made, but these individuals weren't believers in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 notes that a very uh, interesting encounter was had with James after the resurrection, but not before. He didn't believe his older brother was the Messiah, and you wouldn't either. Uh, what was also interesting was there was an incident where Mary uh, was seeking to get Jesus out of a dicey situation politically, and they called for her and said, your mother's calling for you. And Jesus said, who is my mother and my brother? Those who hear the word of God, do it. This is my mother. This is my brother. This is, or these are my family. So noting these degrees of respect or this level of reverence that's inferred upon Mary and those who would be biologically descended from them, we can take it from no other than Mary's mouth herself when quoting, by the way, First Samuel chapter 2, I believe, the Magnificat, her song of praise. Mary is quoting uh, Samuel's mother, Hannah, where she said, My heart rejoices in God, my Savior. And noting all of these things as well, all generations will call her blessed. Peter, do you and I deny that Mary was blessed to be the Jewish girl to bring the Messiah into this world? She's blessed. Absolutely. And we affirm that scripturally. And I'll say it verbally so they say, well, he didn't verbally say it. Mary, daughter, and uh, daughter of Rachel, child of Israel, descendant from King David, as affirmed in the genealogy of Luke chapter 3, is blessed for biologically being the instrument through which the Messiah entered this world. Okay? Okay. But with that then being said, do we call her our co-redemptrix? Do we call her this divine associate, the mother of God, as she's called in traditions? Well, we would say no, because according to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, though his goings forth not only physically was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah specifically, but his goings forth were from old, from everlasting. He doesn't owe his existence to Mary. He doesn't owe his existence to anyone. He is by nature self-sufficient because he is God. If I then associate human individuals with him and ascribe divine traits because they're unique, that's called idolatry. And if there were physical descendants who have survived up till this time, which, again, let's take the hypothetical and say that there is a biological descendant of James, Joseph, Judas, or one of his sisters. Would that make any significance whatsoever in regard to, A, their need for a savior, because it didn't for Mary, B, their status as a sinner before God in need of redemption, didn't for Mary or any of his descendants, and, of course, would it make them, by association with Jesus, any more a part of his family than you or I, Nina, in our love for the word of God? According to Jesus, the answer is no. No, and I think it's really fascinating that both James and Jude, uh, who we we know through church history were the biological brothers of Jesus. When they open up their books, they don't say, 
hey, James, the brother of Jesus. You know, they never use that as a title. They all call themselves the bondservant of Jesus to make sure to really nail that home to anyone who would think that way within the early church. We're not in these positions through nepotism. You know, it's not like God's like, hey, you're kind of related to my son, so therefore you're going to have these positions in the early church. No, that's not why they had those positions. That's not why they were exercising any level of authority. And in fact, the level of authority that they had within the church was very minimal. Uh, we don't actually know anything about Jude's role within the early church. We don't really know if he had like a really big role. It doesn't really seem like he did. James had a fairly large role, but uh, you know, not for very long because he was executed in AD seventy. So you know, you don't really have a lot of uh, a lot of room or ground to stand upon to say that there's anything significant about being a member of that bloodline. Uh, I don't even know if we would be able to trace the bloodlines today, uh, genealogies of the Jews, to figure out if someone was biologically related to them. So, yeah. yeah. So, Nina, as far as what you should tell your cousin, obviously uh, bringing Mary up to a Catholic is like bringing Muhammad up to a Muslim. There's no need to be unnecessarily, I guess, inflammatory. And if you can anticipate sensitive areas, that's a hint to not prod those areas. You want to make sure that the conversation is tactful. So if I were in your situation, what I would do is the same thing I do with a lot of Roman Catholics when we encounter them on our outreaches. First, I start with what Mary actually said. And I'll, I'll, I'll uh, be her cheerleader, in a sense, in noting the things that I can truthfully and honestly affirm about her. I'll know what she said, what she was referencing, and the significance therein. But if they start making hype and going beyond Scripture, I don't say you're lying. I say, where'd you get that? I, I want to know more. And if you phrase it, uh, phrase it, phrase it in the form of a question... That will accomplish a lot more because it puts them in the position where they think they're being respected as a teacher rather than being corrected as a heretic. Uh, obviously, we need to make sure that we have a love for the truth that stands against error, but also to respect people in such a way where we give them enough credit to the point where they say, you know, I just kind of grew up with this, and I have a lot more emotion. My uh, pathos is much more emphasized than my logos on this. Uh, we want to make sure... You don't understand, just ask. But the point being made is this. If you are talking to people, make sure you remember you're talking to people. Treat them accordingly. The other thing to remember, too, is when you ask this transference of power, that was kind of popular in the Anglo-Israel days where they would attribute the kings of Britain and Europe and so forth to have this divine prerogative because they were descendants of the Messiah. Maybe look into that a little bit on your own time and ask them questions like, are you sure this is your kind of group? Because that's honestly white supremacy. This isn't biblical. We need to make sure that we are willing to do our homework on that as well. And since this is a family member, I'd say you have some motivation. But Nina, that's how I would deal with it. Start in Luke 2. Make sure that you reference that in First Samuel chapter 2 and ask questions. Those would be my advice. Anything more? Yeah. All right. Um, here is a interesting question, and this is on our website. Uh, this is from Light Dragon, who wants to know, what does it mean that Rahab will be cut into pieces? This is referencing Isaiah 51 and verse 9. Uh, it's an interesting section of scripture, and again, thank you for the question. When we're talking about the passage, obviously, we don't start in verse 9. We want to start in verse 1, and since the chapters were introduced later, we want to make sure we're not 
you know, jumping in the middle of a conversation. The conversation that is significant here starts actually in chapter 50, but I'll just summarize for the point that's relevant to your question. Um, he begins in verse 1 by saying, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why then, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened that, at all that it cannot redeem? Or do I have no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak, a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as uh, the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear as I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard, and... I did not hide my face from their shame and from spitting. Now, I want to stop there because, no, we're already getting into some messianic tones here. And you can talk to anyone you want. This is in reference to the Messiah and his beatings and scourgings and so forth. As long as they're not orthodox, they're going to notice some similarities. But what has he been building up? Well, first of all, he's speaking to a Jewish audience and historically regarding their rebellions. Now, Isaiah spoke in the 8th century B.C., and they wouldn't go into exile. They wouldn't be experiencing the consequences of this rebellion for another 200 years. But Isaiah is speaking to essentially anyone who would listen and saying, hey, my credibility is shot. I am telling you what is from God, and his word is, ha- is what has the authority, because his word also created all of this. And he uses very interesting themes like, at a word from the Lord, at a rebuke from the Lord, the sea is dried up. You know, we we can push the water and it just you know slushes right back. God does anything; He just talks to it. It dries up. So these very interesting pictures are being shown. Now, after building up this servant, who's Israel's ultimate hope, it continues on to note those who follow after righteousness. That's how verse one of chapter fifty one sets up. So we're eight verses out, but note: listen to me, who you who follow after righteousness. It's speaking to people who have a sound relationship with God. It continues on to build up this point. Listen to me, my people, verse 4. Give ear to me, O my nation. Who's the audience? Who's being spoken? Okay, what would this mean to them? If then we get to verse 9, what then is the point of emphasis? Well, I can go to a few commentaries, and what's uh, interesting is their insights would point us to, say, for example, the serpent. And let me read the passage. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Note that, because that's important as well. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. So we're looking to the past. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? So, Two historical individuals are listed, the serpent, which I'm sure we can associate with Genesis 3, and Rahab, who was a Canaanite. Now, Rahab, oddly enough, wasn't the individual who specifically was killed in the book of Joshua. In fact, she and her family were the only ones that were spared. 
Why then is that referenced? Well, this is a EnduringWord.com where they make a reference to Psalm 89 and verse 10. Dave Guzik's a fantastic resource, by the way, Light Dragon. I recommend him to check out any time. But in Psalm 89 and verse 10, it uses this same picture. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies, notice, with your mighty arm. And it goes on from here. The power of the Messiah the arm of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, all these things in building up the chosen one of Israel, the one who would be their redeemer, their savior, the one to destroy their enemies. What is the association? Well, just like the serpent wasn't evil because of his slithery sliminess, but his association with Satan, who do we associate with Rahab, the Canaanites, the enemies of Israel? So if there's this common theme and if there's this topic What then can I justify? Well, in the interpretation, I ask who is being spoken to. In the passage, I ask when did this conversation begin and what set the tone? Israel's need for a savior and that it will be provided for her by someone who would be beaten, who wouldn't hide his face from them even as they pulled out his beard. What does it continue on to do? Speaking to those who are righteous, remember the days of old. God defeated the enemies, the Canaanites, those who were associated with Rahab, and destroyed the power of the serpent. This is, of course, an expectation of his power over sin and death forever. See 1 Corinthians 15. But if I'm going too fast for you, let me just lay it down as this. If we look at the passage and see this verse, what's being referenced? Well, a word. What comes before the word? Other words, hopefully in the form of a sentence. And I'm being basic, but we'll build up to this point. What are those sentences followed by? Other sentences till the start of the conversation. Start there and note that the flow of the point kind of ends up interpreting itself over time. If you want special emphasis on Rahab, and again, full empathy, it's usually the parts that uh, the commentaries glance over that I want to know the most about. But the point being made is this. What was being talked about? Rahab? No. The Messiah? Yes, but in what capacity? In verse 9, the destruction of her enemies, but it doesn't stop there. Because note, verse 10, it says, Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? What's that a reference to? The Exodus. Verse 11, so the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sign shall flee away. He's talking about the restoration before they've even left. (laughs) So note the point and the buildup here, Light Dragon, and thank you for the question. But that's how I would handle it. Make sure that you start at the beginning of the conversation. They're usually good about that. Thus says the Lord in prophecies would be a good place to start. But... um, Regarding anything else, any other uh, hermeneutical tools you'd recommend? All right, thank you. Let us know if that helps you out. Now, uh, going over to our Facebook page, I'll be keeping an eye on your questions as and if you send them in. Uh, Question on our YouTube page, at least I think this is a question, um, regarding how Christians should approach helping the homeless. Obviously, there is a dilemma because when you ask yourself, okay, this person needs help, but why are they in that position where they need help? Is it because of bad luck or bad decisions? If I help them in certain ways, will it be enabling or will it be actually helpful? And all these things are considered. What should, I guess, a Christian, as the thinking man's religion is concerned, ask themselves when given the opportunity to be generous? 
Yeah, no, very, very good question. So when it comes to people who are impoverished, it really does depend on where you live. So if you're in the West, we function on this capacity of really wanting to be charitable and to help people. Uh, now, there are debates. So let me give you, like, the really cynical side, and then I'll try to balance it out. So there's this really cynical side of philosophy. Uh, Calvin Hobbes, I think, was a big one who believed this. He actually believed very firmly that you should give no aid to people who are impoverished ever. Uh, now, he gives a couple reasons as to why, because someone would come against him and be like, well, what if this person's just bad luck? You know, unfortunate economic situations have happened to them, and therefore they've been thrust into poverty. Shouldn't we give them a helping hand? And his response would be no, because if you give someone something that they haven't earned, they don't respect it. And because they don't respect it, they're not going to treat it appropriately, and they're either going to use it and fritter it away on something that is either meaningless or something damaging to them, or they're not going to be able to protect it in a way that someone else couldn't take it from them, either through deceit, usury, or maybe even force. So in other words, if you give someone something that they haven't earned, they lose respect for it, and therefore that thing will become uh, a means of their own destruction. Either they're going to use it to hurt themselves, or it's going to attract attention from someone who's going to use them or hurt them in order to get that from them. Beyond that, he believed that it was going to be a really big deterrent towards homelessness in general. In other words, if people believed that being homeless or being impoverished was something that could actually kill you, it would really deter that lifestyle. People would do everything they could to avoid it, and therefore the number of homeless people would go down. Now, that sounds callous and it sounds cruel. And by the way, it is. <laughs> I'm going to balance it out in a second. But what are the results of societies who do that? Well, when a society lives that way, when a society treats homeless people in that manner, you actually see the number, the overall number of people who are impoverished and homeless go down, shrink exponentially. Now, some people might respond to me and they'll say, well, aren't countries who live that way or operate that way, don't they have many people who are impoverished? Yes, but that's not a result of how they treat the impoverished, that's actually a result of their economic situations. In other words, you can't really say that because the countries that you're referring to are the non-Western countries that are most of them third world where the majority of people are impoverished. But if people know that being homeless or not having a lot of money could result in your death, they'll do everything they can to avoid that type of lifestyle. If people know that being impoverished or being homeless can be rewarded, that people will take care of them anyway or give them resources, they don't avoid it as actively, and therefore more people, not less, will end up being homeless. And then you can make the argument of, is that actually compassionate? Because now you have an increased number of homeless people. So for instance, in the United States, over the last couple of years where government has given literally trillions of dollars to help out people on the lower rung of the economic scale, what you have is an increase of homelessness that we've never really seen before. I believe last year over 100,000 people have died uh, in the homeless situation over just the last year. That's a lot. That includes drug overdoses, people being killed or murdered on the streets. Being homeless is very dangerous, right? Being homeless is an incredibly dangerous situation. It's not good for you in a health way. And therefore, because we've actually been inciting it a little bit through our supposed compassion, we've actually encouraged the number of homelessness within our societies. Now, on the other end, there are people who would say, well, no, 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 homeless people need to be really, we need to have a lot of compassion on them. We need to give them every opportunity in order to pull themselves out of that situation. Agreed. 
But people on that side may be a little bit too generous. And like I said, through their supposed generosity and compassion, they may increase the overall number of homeless people that are out in the streets, but they'll also be enabling bad or significantly detrimental behavior from the homeless people who are there. So what's kind of the middle ground? Well, what you see in the Old Testament, I think, is a really good principle for us. So God had a really interesting charity program built into the Old Covenant. And essentially what it was is there was a law for how people were to harvest their crops. And what they were to do is they were to only harvest the center of the crops, but they were to leave the corners with crops still on it. Now, the reason why is because that was specifically laid out for the homeless, for the impoverished. They can go and they could collect grain and various other goods in order to sustain them through their lifestyle. And there's uh, two examples of this. The first is in the book of Ruth, where as the girls unmarried were basically on welfare, they went out to gather from Boaz's field because he was a godly man. He observed this practice. And in the New Testament, we see the disciples, they were hungry, so they started going to grain fields. It's like, hey, you're robbing that guy's crop. No, they complained because they didn't wash their hands first in the ceremonial way. Yeah, just one rule. You couldn't bring a basket. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so and that, that was the rule. You <laughs> needed to meet your physical needs. This would be provided for you, but they wouldn't meet your greed. This, right. If you were going to you know, gather, you may as well just plant your crop, right? That's the point. That's right. So the, this law was not designed to, as Sean said, like create your own business. I, I wasn't there, there with a John Deere tractor loading it up, and then I'm going to sell that dude's crops. I'm there to just sustain myself through what I need in that particular moment. But the goal would always be to get someone out of that lifestyle. And in fact, a lot of people are really opposed to the idea of, you know, they really cringe at the idea of slavery. Well, slavery back in the day was a way to get people out of that situation. They would work off their debts and be put into a position in society where they can start contributing again. That's the good thing. Now, we do see, I'm not, I don't have time to go to these passages, but in 2 Thessalonians, there's a really good passage where Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Now, what he's saying, and here's the principle, if you're in a situation where you can't, let's say someone's been badly physically injured, they just can't for some other, maybe even a mental or psychological reason, they cannot provide for themselves, society ought to take care of those people. But if someone can, they should. So where a lot of Christians uh, fall in this balance is they say, I am going to support financially or in other ways, I'm going to support corporations, businesses, charities that seek to get people out of homelessness. And if someone really wants to get out, they will go to those organizations. But if they don't, I'm not doing them any favors by giving them money. Truth without compassion is rude. Compassion without truth is enablement. Make sure we don't make either mistake. Here comes the music. So instead of talking over it, we will say goodbye for now. Until then, we'll see you all tomorrow. God bless you. Thank you for your questions. We look forward to answering more next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.